Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. On this show, we change the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. Today, we're discussing the nationwide issue of mass incarceration. America holds 2.2 million people in prison or jail, and in Maryland, over 22,000 people are currently in state prisons. In the U.S., one in five people incarcerated are locked up for a drug offense. The amount of people incarcerated has increased by over 500% in the last 40 years, and the results have been horrendous. Overcrowding in prisons and immense fiscal burdens on states. All this in spite of growing evidence that mass incarceration is not an effective method of enforcing or sustaining public safety. So what's the future of prisons? We're looking to examples in Europe, where incarceration itself is viewed as the punishment to learn more. Many European models focus on rehabilitation rather than retribution. While some here in the U.S. remain skeptical about the European method of incarceration, many are beginning to implement changes and programs that take best practices from European countries and apply them here in the U.S. So what does this potential future look like? How do we get here to this moment where the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world? The history is complicated, and so is the future. Here to help us sort through it all, we have a great lineup of guests. And the first to join us on the show is someone who I've been a longtime fan and, and admirer of, Nick Turner, who is the president of the Vera Institute of Justice. And in 2018, the Vera Institute authored a report called Reimagining Prison. This report reimagines the how, the what, and the why of incarceration and asserts a new governing principle on which to ground prison policy and practice, human dignity. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Wes. Um, it's great to join you, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I, we have mutual fandom going on here. <laughs> well, it's a real joy to have you on here, man. It's an important topic and, and important to highlight the work that you're doing. And, and, uh, and so, first of all, for those who are not familiar, can you acquaint our listeners with the work that, Vera, that the Vera Institute does? I can. So the Vera Institute of Justice is uh, an organization that's committed to uh, radically transforming American justice systems. Um, so that they actually produce justice and, and more fairness and are more humane. And I, I say justice systems because we, in fact, don't have just one system. We've, you know, immigrants who are facing deportation are dealing with issues of justice as much as people who are arrested by the police uh, or people who are facing prosecution or people who are in prison. So the organization is national in scope. We work on a broad range of issues from policing to prosecution reform, sentencing, how people are treated in prison, and 
and uh, and providing lawyers for people who are in immigration proceedings. And I, and I and I love that you phrase it that way because you know oftentimes when people think uh, when people think justice reform, people think, oh, how are we going to reimagine prison? This is not just about the physical infrastructure that you're talking about. This is something much bigger and much broader, uh, that it's about much more than just, uh, you know, what are we doing about these four walls uh, to address the conditions that people are living in? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's really a, it's a, it's a deeply complicated system that I almost describe as a non-system because uh, the when you think about how American justice is dispensed, it's dispensed by a broad array of actors, the, cop, the cops who are on the street or the judges who, are, who sit on benches in black robes or prosecutors who are in their offices making decisions about whether to charge a person a certain way or to offer a plea bargain, uh, to corrections officials who run prisons and their officers who staff them. And all of these things are run by different units of government. Some of them are local, um, you know, run by sheriffs or prosecutors who are locally elected. Some of them are state. They are, you know, creatures of state legislation. And then there's a federal piece, too. And it's very atomized. It's diffuse. So there's a ton of, there's a big workforce that is uh, operating the justice system in a, in a surprisingly incomprehensibly uh, disconnected way. And it seems like it's, it's providing an interesting opportunity for, uh, for the work of Vera and, and, and others to also highlight things that are working and highlighting things that, that, are, that are scaled. You know, one of the beautiful examples that you all talk about is this example of The Rock. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so The, the Rock is um, the nickname of, of the Cheshire Correctional Institute, which is a maximum security facility in Connecticut, um, in the town of Cheshire, maybe about you know, 25 miles uh, north of New Haven. And um, there are about 1,300 people who live in that facility. The way in which they live is they are, unless they are among the lucky few who are involved in education or, or um, uh, work programs, they spend 22 hours in their cells. Uh, every day, so it's called a 22-2 facility. And um, a few years ago, right when I think this uh, this sort of uh, impulse for reform and this momentum was really starting to build, we took the governor of of Connecticut, Daniel Malloy, and his corrections commissioner to Germany to look at how that system worked. Let me just say a quick thing about that system. It is one-tenth the size of the American – well, it's much – it's even smaller than that, but Germany incarcerates at a tenth the rate that America does. Um, uh, it uses uh, prison uh, far less in terms of the length of sentences, so a, a quote-unquote life sentence in Germany is – uh, 21 years maximum, um, whereas in America, 70% of people who go through the criminal justice system end up being incarcerated. In Germany, that number is much closer to, you know, 5 or 6%. The vast majority of people just get a fine when they are uh, adjudicated. So it's a way more, it's a much smaller, more humane system, and we wanted American actors to see that. So Governor Malloy and Secretary Semple went, and they saw that, and they saw in particular a, a prison for young adults um, in Germany that, that uh, resembles very much a, a healthy, healing, restorative, therapeutic community that you might see 
something similar to in the juvenile justice system in this country in only the very best of practices. I mean, it, it, it just was far and away different than what exists in the American adult system and is a, maybe a close approximation of a, a, of a few things you might see in the juvenile justice system. But the governor and the secretary said, we want to do something like that in Connecticut. And so we chose Vera to work with them at The Rock, this hardcore maximum security facility, and to, to create a special unit for young adults. We took an old solitary wing. We tore out the, um, the cages. Uh, we took the very best practices from Germany, the best practices from American juvenile justice, like the importance of keeping people connected to family, we thought about young adult brain science and how young adults are still at a really important moment in their lives when they can develop. And we helped them to create a, a community that's called True. Um, the most important thing that I'll say about that is that we didn't do it with a blueprint. We didn't just try to plunk down something we saw in Germany in American soil, but rather we worked in a participatory way with the people who live and work in prison in in Cheshire and said, what would a healing uh, community that is committed to human dignity, that where that is safe and that is constructive, what would it look like for you all? And then they co-constructed it with us. And so in Cheshire is this sort of jewel of a unit where over two years there's not been a single act of violence. They don't use solitary confinement as a consequence for misbehavior, which is a very rare thing in America. Um, corrections officers feel safer. The young people who are there feel safer. Um, and, uh, and what we're seeing is that a lot of the young people are getting out um, earlier and ready to succeed in the world, and, and the corrections officers are um, able to be more effective in their, in their jobs. So it's a remarkable sort of transference of a bunch of ideas and principles that on some level I would just say reduces to like, you know, you started, we started from the principle of like what would a place that was committed to the humanity of everyone who lives and works in it look like? How would it feel? How would you behave towards one another? What are the rules that we create? And, and, and worked with people who live and work there to create that place. And there, there are people, what do you say to people who will then make the argument and say, you know, listen, the, these people did something wrong, and, and they're, they're in there for a reason. They deserve a harsh punishment. Our job is not to educate them. Our job is not to play music for them. Our job is not to make it more comfortable. Um, and, and, and our job is to punish. Our job is to use prison, uh, you know, for, uh, for this is where we put people who have, who have uh, embarrassed society or, or done things to hurt people. Uh, what would you say to those who will make the argument that the job of our prison systems is not to make it easier on people, is not to make it more humane on people? Yeah, that's a great question, and I and I, I get it a lot. There there are three things that I that I say, and and then I'll say a little bit about why why I do. I mean, the the first the first thing I ask people is, is, you know, have you ever done something wrong in your life? Think about the worst thing that you've done. Try to get them to think about that, and they say, okay, got it. And I say, so does that define you? Is that the sum total of you, or are you? Do you have more dimension than that? Should we, I reduce you to whatever that thing is that you've done? That's what we do when we think about people who are in prison. They are an offender, an inmate, the 
you know, the robber, the burglar, the sexual assaulter, we reduce them and we strip away all of it. We otherize them. The second thing that I say is, well, what, do you, what would you want? What kind of system would you want for your son or for your father or for your uncle or for your mother if, if they were to do something wrong and they had to pay the price? What would you want that system to be for someone who you love? And then the third thing that I say is like, well, you want it to work, right? I mean, what if 95% of people who go to who get locked up in this country are going to come back out, and you want that experience to help them come out to be as healthy um, and ready to be um, productive and a good neighbor to you. And so, if what I tell you now is that we have a system that. Uh, brutalizes them, that um, strips them of their humanity, uh, that harms them, and they are going to come out more likely to do harm and less likely to contribute to their families or communities. Why is that? Why would that work for you? Why would you want that? The last sort of factual thing that I try to say to people is, you know, I know that you have some image in your mind of some, you know, son of Sam type character. And so you're like, and that sort of justifies all of the sort of punishment instincts you have. But, you know, in this country, if you just look at the number of people who have been arrested in a given year, which is around 11 million people, only 5% of those are for violent crime. So whatever image that you're constructing for yourself is based upon, you know, is actually not representative of what, what actually happens in this country. So you have to sort of like work yourself through a process of, you know, of undoing assumptions that you're making. And sometimes that works, but it doesn't, it doesn't always. Some, you know, we're a vengeful country. I think we believe in retribution, uh, like down to our bones. So, so Nick, I have um, I have, I have one more question for you, and and uh, in your report, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna make sure we have it on our site so people can also check it out. Um, you you list three values as undergirding America's prison system uh, as we understand it today, and those three values are listed as retribution, incapacitation, and deterrence. If you could change those values to three others, what would they be? So, I would. I would so deterrence. We know that it doesn't work. I mean, the deterrence means, hey, we're going to throw you in prison, and other people are going to for an act that you created for that you did, and other people are going to see that and they're going to think, hmm, I don't want to do that same thing because I don't want to end up in prison. That doesn't work. That's right. Um, retribution, I, you know, is almost sort of like this biblical value. I think just as a as a nation, as a you know that. One doesn't want to embrace that value because it's it's not good for the soul and civilization. I think we want to we want to be more focused on accountability and restoration. So the things that I think that would matter a ton in a criminal justice system, in a much smaller uh, system of incapacitation, uh, the values one would be restoration. It is our uh, job restoration or normalization it's our job to help you to succeed um, when you are released and everything is organized around that um, I would say that the second thing is just and and this supports it is a commitment to the to human dignity um, and again that is just to recognize that we're not dealing with criminals inmates prisoners we're dealing with human beings who 
um, need to heal or have emotions and they need to be treated as such and there's certain rights and elements of being a human that have to be respected at all times. And then the last, the last uh, you know, principle I think would be a, a broader principle of what's called in, um, you know, in the law parsimony, and I like to trot this out just to pretend that I'm still a decent <laughs> lawyer. Um, and parsimony just means that you're that um, it means it it means that you want to um, uh, you want to use as little as possible. Um, the you know the consequence of incarceration. You want to be parsimonious with it. You want to you know rather than overdoing it, you want to underdo it. You want to use it in the, as few circumstances as possible. And I think that's a really important value for the criminal justice system, not just in terms of imprisonment, but in terms of the way the system touches people. How what do the police need to touch people for for a mental health challenge or you know. No. So you want to be parsimonious with police enforcement. You want to be parsimonious with the power to charge people as a prosecutor. You want to be parsimonious with your use of jail and prison. So those restoration, normalization, commitment to human dignity, and parsimony. That's fantastic. We've been speaking with Nick Turner, who is the president of the Vera Institute of Justice. Nick, thank you so much for your leadership and everything you do for our society, and thank you for joining us today. Wes, thank you for your leadership and for, um, and for, for having this conversation with me. It's such an important one for, for your, your listeners to hear, and I had a, a great time talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. All right, man. Take care. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, we're speaking with Deanna Hoskins, CEO and President of Just Leadership USA. For her, the issue of incarceration is personal. She's been incarcerated herself, and her story and how she plans to cut America's incarcerated population in half by 2030 is up next. Stay with us. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fidler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. Today on the show, we've been discussing the complicated history of incarceration in the United States and what models we need to ensure a better future for our criminal justice system. And I'm very excited that joining us now is our next guest, Deanna Hoskins, who is the CEO and president of Just Leadership USA. Just Leadership has the goal of cutting America's incarcerated population in half by 2030. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Wes. So before we learn a little bit about you and and the specifics of of Just Leadership, um, can you just acquaint our listeners with your organization's history uh, and the sort of work that Just Leadership focuses on? Yes. So Just Leadership um, USA was founded in 2014 by Glenn Martin, and he founded it on the principle that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from resource and power. Um, So the organization began with that principle 
of investing directly into leaders who have been directly impacted to move policy reform. We have a year-long training called Leading with Convictions, where we train formerly incarcerated individuals and other people directly impacted who are mid to senior level leaders um, within their communities, have a proven track record in advocacy, community organizing. And, and within that year-long training in the last four years, we have actually trained 100 Leading with Convictions alumni and 544 graduates of our Emerging Leaders, which is a one-day training program. So right now, we have um, leaders in 38 states, including Washington, D.C. And while leadership is an important foundation of our organization, we firmly believe um, being successful and permanently decarcerating to cut the correctional population in half, we focus on the advocacy aspect of it as well. Um, and advocating for jail closures, policy reform around bail, speedy trial, and some of those nuances that keep individuals what we call um, criminalizing um, poverty and quality of life issues as well. Mm. So I, I, I want to come back to that, uh, the, the, the criminalization of, of poverty. Um, but one of the things I really admire about Just Leadership USA is, is you guys just don't talk about it. You know, you live it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and especially when you're talking about the, the importance of lifting up those who have been directly impacted by this, as you say, those who are close to the challenge are close to the solution. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and even for you, this is a very personal mission for you. Um, yes. can you talk a little bit about your background, your history and what brought you to, to Just Leadership USA? Um, well, for being a formerly incarcerated individual who suffered, um, dealt with incarceration based on a substance abuse problem I had mm -hmm. over 20 years ago, where I was actually criminalized for having the substance abuse, had to serve time, kids totally stripped away from me, um, going into the system, the child services system, and me having to ultimately spend time um, based on the, the criminal activity that was based on a substance abuse problem I had. No one ever offered me treatment or diversion. Mm. Incarceration was a direct result of it. But one of the biggest things is once I was released, even trying to reunite with my children and do the requirements that the judge gave me of maintaining my sobriety, um, getting uh, meaningful employment and housing to get the custody of my kids, I now had this felony conviction that created a barrier for me being able to follow through to even reunite with my children. Um, so I really started a strong advocacy campaign, didn't understand, started asking questions of, well, why is it this hard when you're telling me this is a requirement for me not to violate probation? This is a requirement for me to be reunited with my kids. But in society, I was held back from it. And I actually met Glenn Martin um, around 2002. And he was the first individual who I saw that was openly honest and comfortable with saying, I have a criminal background. Mm. Um, I had gotten to the point where I was just happy to have a job, so I didn't want people to know I had a criminal background because I knew if they knew that it would jeopardize my employment opportunities. So when I met Glenn and he was open with the fact that he had a criminal background but that he was working in this space of advocating – I finally saw some kind of sense of freedom, that it was okay, and that I didn't need to be held hostage by the fact that I had a criminal background, but I needed to advocate that we have stigmatized this and almost criminalized individuals from being able to even rehabilitate and prove themselves of saying, I made a mistake. 
why are you holding me hostage to my past when I'm trying to move beyond it? Um, kind of led me to this work. My and work has went went over. Go ahead. No, but but I I, I, I want I want you just to, to to hit on that for the listeners how important that is, because we we talk about this idea of rehabilitation. And then we continually have barriers that are set up to prevent any form of 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 of, uh, of not even just rehabilitation, but any any real thorough and proper reentry. Um, you know the, the 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 amount of barriers that stand. Can you talk a little bit about uh, you know what that means to right. come back and then to know that you still have these uh, these series of asterisks that will sit next to your name as you continue to try to go through this process of uh of, of, of reentry both with family, community, and our large society. Right. So I, I think one of the things most individuals don't understand that I was in Ohio. So in Ohio, I once I started doing the research, I realized that there were 48,000 employment barriers for individuals who had a felony conviction. Not a mm. specific felony, but the fact that you had a felony conviction. So even though I was dealing with substance abuse and I'm now clean, and I want to go back to my dreams and hope of going into the medical field and being a nurse because the medical field is what has been transpired through my family. I was totally blocked from that. I was totally blocked from going to nursing school. I was totally blocked from even working in a hospital environment. And then I realized that not only was I totally blocked from that, the skills that I had around data entry, and that was at a time when everything wasn't automated and banks still process checks at the end of the close of business where I would go into interviews and they would say, Deanna, we want to hire you. You have the skill set that we need that I actually got in high school, vocational training, but because of your felony conviction, we can't. So I started asking employers, can you give me a letter saying that? Because I realized my only opportunity to be able to advance my career and be successful was a governor was going to have to give me a part and somebody, I was going to have to demonstrate to somebody that this felony conviction that I've gotten because I've had a substance abuse where you didn't offer me treatment is now preventing me from being successful and being able to follow through with the requirements that you put on paper for my probation. So I started taking those letters to my probation officer. I'm looking for employment. This is the response I'm getting. Um, so when we started going through that, and she was like, well, how do we – I was like, I'm going to have to apply for a pardon, and I need your help. So when people look at it, they don't understand um, how detrimental a felony conviction is. And I want to bring up my my passion has kind of been renewed in the last three years because I have a a 22-year-old who really got caught and did something he should not have done, got caught up in the system, and he's out now. He's 22, but prior to going to prison, he had scholarships on the table for basketball and football West. Hmm. Even in the courtroom, the judge asked the prosecutor, was he willing to lower the charge to a charge where he can give him community supervision so he could follow through on these scholarships? And the prosecutor said no. So one, that's where I realized the power of the prosecutor in the criminal justice system. But two, what I'm watching is a 22-year-old who is now home, who's kind of lost, watched how the system has beat him down, but who's looking for jobs at fast food restaurants. And every day keeps sending me these rejection letters of mom, I'm trying my best. What do I do? And this And is... we're talking about he's applying at McDonalds, White Castles, Home Depot, and he's getting rejected. So where if he can't get a fast food restaurant job right now, 
what are his options? And how does that defeat a person if they don't have other people in their life to still encourage them and say, hold on, here are some opportunities, or try to connect them? If they totally are by themselves, it's almost being pushed back into a survival mode of crime because you have to eat, you have to have a place to sleep, but the system, society with the laws and the barriers, we have created, we've made it harder, and we say get rehabilitated, leave prison to be successful, but society's not that accepting of you. And this is a young man who is the the son of the leader of one of the most important social justice organizations in the country. Yes. Battling this. Yes. And and it and it seems like one of the other big issues that we have to think about is the basic idea of the size of the prison population. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What is the half by thirty campaign? So the half by thirty campaign is cutting the U.S. correctional population in half by twenty thirty. And when we say U.S. correction population, we just don't mean the 2 million sitting in brick and mortar. We're including the 4.5 currently serving community supervision. For a total of over 7 million individuals in this country are uh, under some sort of correctional control. We also know that... And, and, sorry, and, and just, parole, ju- just for our listeners to understand, uh, community control, parole, probation. Uh, yes. Okay. So we know that the reincarceration that probation and parole ha- um, happens to do with what we call technical violations. Mm-hmm. Not that you violated and committed a new crime, that you violated a condition of your probation or parole. But what society doesn't know, sometimes those conditions are just antiquated information. So, and I'll utilize Wisconsin, uh, for example. Part of being on parole and probation in Wisconsin says, you can't open up a bank account without your probation officer's permission. If you miss an appointment or you're, you're missing curfew, maybe because the transportation or the bus didn't get you back at home on time, you can actually be rearrested and incarcerated back in prison. There's also um, the one I really like is you can't marry or date someone who possibly has a criminal record. Well, there are 70 million people in this country that has a criminal <laughs> record at this point. The probability that somebody might have had some touch point is possibly there, you know? So where our goal is we're going into localities saying, hey, you have a racial disparity, one, of individuals who are serving community control or sitting in brick-and-mortar prison. How, how can we work with you and the advocates on the ground who are directly impacted to address some of those rules? So we're working in Philadelphia with um, – Larry Krasner, the DA there, who's overhauling probation, who's not even prosecuting some low-level charges, who are saying people are better served in the community. So when we look at cutting it in half, we're really talking about cutting that $7 million in half by overhauling some administrative laws that don't take state legislation, but also addressing some of those state legislations of how we incarcerate. I think one of the biggest things for your listeners is to understand every arrest does not have to result in a prosecution. And prosecutors, we're getting more progressive prosecutors who are understanding, I don't have to prosecute this kid. This kid may be on a trajectory of his life and been involved in something. What diversion can I do that does not result in a felony conviction that will hinder his life? that may give him an opportunity to step back and say, okay, I made a mistake. What is my contribution to my community and move on beyond it? So we're really talking to prosecutors and working with them of 
how to divert some of this that is costing counties millions of dollars because every case that's coming across their desk, they're moving to prosecution on when all of them don't require it. So are you optimistic that we can actually reach that goal uh, of half by 2030? And what are the things that you would want to see to make you feel like, yes, we can actually get this done? I actually, if we just addressing probation and parole and diversion on prosecutors, we definitely can get there. Hmm. It's getting on board and addressing those issues, which are the most nuanced. So one of the things that I'm very optimistic is was I was able to pull the research and I realized intake into corrections, whether it's probation, parole, or a state prison sentence, actual intake for new crimes are going down. But prison populations are rising which is a direct result of the probation and parole violations occurring that people are going back, meaning they didn't commit a new crime. They oh. just violated one of those technical rules, and it's the end result prison. Um, we know that some of those rules include don't use drugs or alcohol. Well, when a person tests dirty, we send them to prison and we don't send them to treatment. Or they had a mental health breakdown, they moved out of their housing, now they're homeless. So we send them to prison, but not to community resources for them to be able to get their mental health medication together and stay stable in the community. We've actually used prison as a solution instead of as the default, instead of as the last resort. We've been speaking with Deanna Hoskins, the CEO and president of Just Leadership USA. Deanna, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Wes. Thank you, and thank you to your listeners. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, in the final segment of the show, we're zooming in on Maryland. At Jessup Correctional Institute, some inmates are receiving the benefit of a college education. How? We speak with Andrea Cantora, the director of the University of Baltimore's Second Chance College program. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back to Future City. I am Wes Moore, and our last guest on the show today is Andrea Cantora, who is the associate professor at the University of Baltimore and the director of the university's Second Chance College program, offered at Jessup Correctional Institution. Andrea, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for having me. And so I want to first uh, identify the fact that you wear many hats, uh, and both as a professor and as also a director. Um, but let's start by learning about Second Chance. Can you talk to the listener a little bit about what the Second Chance program is? Sure, absolutely. So in 2016, the University of Baltimore launched the Second Chance College program at Jessup Correctional. And uh, we started doing this work under the U.S. Department of Education's Experimental Sites Initiative, which basically allows certain colleges and universities across the country to provide college education through the Pell Grant. So you might remember in 1994, Pell Grant was taken out of prisons. Prisoners can no longer access education through Pell Grants. But in 2016, 
there was this experimental sites initiative that allowed some of us to do this work. So UB is one of the places doing this work. We launched in the summer of 2016. We, so far in the past three years, have served 63 students. We currently have about 43 enrolled in the program, and they're University of Baltimore students. They're incarcerated, but they're taking college courses Monday through Friday. We bring in the same exact courses offered on campus. So some of our students are sophomores, juniors at this point, and they're doing incredibly well. And so for the listeners who aren't sure, who, who aren't familiar with Pell Grants, yeah. what exactly are Pell Grants so they understand why the taking out of Pell Grants uh, you know, in, in 1994 was so problematic? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so a Pell Grant is basically any any person wanting to go to college who has a low income could qualify for a federal Pell Grant. And in 1994, things were really changing in the criminal justice system. There were a lot of um, laws being changed to be um, more tough on crime. And under um, one of the bills that was passed in 1994, it included a provision to uh, reduce rehabilitation programs in prisons and including reducing access to college by eliminating the Pell Grant. And so, in essence, uh, what was happening was it was both about reducing the amount of options, but then also saying even for those who still have options, there'd be no way to pay for it. Exactly. And, of course, incarcerated people are um, very low income, right? right. Some people uh, might make $100 a year. You know, maybe a few thousand if they're if they're in a prison that has um, a lot of work opportunities. So they can't afford to pay for college if they wanted to. What was the response uh, around the university once uh, once they got the opportunity to participate in this program? Yeah, people were really excited. You know, I was a bit nervous bringing this uh, new project to the university and kind of getting the go ahead uh, to do this work, but all the way up to the president, Kurt Schmoke, like he he supported this from the very beginning. He was excited about this. People are still excited about this work. I have faculty around the university once they learn that this is happening on campus, because in the beginning, not everyone was aware that this was happening. But when people start to hear about it on campus, they want to volunteer in the program. They want to teach in the program. It's been a great response. And when we talk about the amount of students that have been served, the amount of students are still that are still mm-hmm. being served, um, what is the demand? Like, if, 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 if we had a chance to actually serve every student, uh, yeah. every potential student, someone who wanted to actually go through this program who is currently in JCI, in, in Jessica Correctional Institution right now, yeah. what do you think the demand would be for this? I, I know that there's a great demand. Uh, we've been doing this for three years. We are close to having 300 people have a, who have applied to our program. There's great interest, and unfortunately, like, we can't serve everybody. Um, I know we can certainly expand. Um, there's a great demand to do this work. And have, have you seen big differences between the way that you all have administered it and some of the other colleges and universities that also receive permits to be able to go through this program? How are you all different? Yeah. How are you all coordinating? Sure. What is that process like? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So some of the colleges that have been doing this have been doing this for a long time. Um, so Goucher, for example, has been doing this work before the experimental site 
Pell Initiative started. BARD has been doing this for quite some time, and there's many others across the country who have been doing this work. Um, University of Baltimore is new to this. So, for example, I reach out to Goucher and other colleges to get advice of how should we be doing this? What are some of the issues that we should be thinking about? Um, So we are in communications. Um, The Veer Institute of Justice is the technical assistant provider for this work. So um, the colleges have a place to reach out to if if they need a connection to another college who might be experiencing something. So I feel like we're all working together. We're all different. There's some community colleges doing this, four-year institutions, public, private. So it's all over the place in terms of who is doing this. But our goal is pretty common. Like we want to provide education um, and we want to increase opportunities for people when they go home. And I want to actually talk about that in context of the other hat that you wear, which is professor. Uh, and your class that you uh, that you that you you're actually taking a class your comparative uh, your comparative criminal justice class mm-hmm. uh, you're actually taking them on a bit of a field trip. Yes. Where are you taking them and why? Sure, I am taking students this summer to Germany. Uh, we're going to spend about ten days in Berlin, um, and I'm taking them there because when I teach on campus, most of my work is on corrections, and I teach correction courses. And I have been wanting to tour Norway's system and Germany's system for quite some time. So I I was thinking, well, why don't I turn this into a class, right? I want to go see this. I want my students to see this. I'm taking them to Germany because Germany does things very differently than the U.S. in terms of how we incarcerate people and what we do with people while they're there. Um, so I want my students to see this for themselves. Uh, what exactly do you mean they do things differently? Right. So... In Germany and Norway and other places, uh, people in prison are are treated more like patients, I would say. Um, The officers are not, um, they're trained to be social workers, mental health counselors. They're trained to be um, service workers. Uh, It's more therapeutic, right? Rehabilitation is truly the focus. It's not an afterthought. It is the focus when someone goes to prison in some of these countries. Um, Officers and people incarcerated interact in a way that you don't often see here in the United States. Um, There's, you know, the concepts of human dignity and respect are at the forefront of the German system and Norway system. And it's a bit different from here. It's interesting uh, to talk to people about what's happening with the German system. And, and uh, you were speaking with Nick Turner earlier, talking mm-hmm. about how even you know his trip with the former governor, Governor Malloy of, of Connecticut, helped to lead to how Connecticut rethinks, um, has, is rethinking its criminal justice uh, and, and prison system. One of the interesting, thing, one of the interesting components, though, uh, about one of the big differences between the way that Germany has looked at incarceration and the United States has been looked at incarceration uh, is one word race and the difference in race about and the role that race plays in incarceration and the history of incarceration uh, within these two countries and even the way the systems now um, how, how how do you think about this construct and the component but understanding that role that cloud that race plays in terms of both history and current context right absolutely um, yeah that's definitely a big part of it um, it's something that I'm hoping to incorporate into my class so my, my students can look a little bit about US, the U.S. history of race and incarceration and looking to see Germany's history and how they're doing things in a way that's trying to 
um, reconcile the past, right? So, so that's definitely a huge part. I feel like the U.S. has a long way to go in terms of um, looking at the history, looking at the past, looking at racial issues. Uh, we're seeing it happen- happening in some places, but not completely. Um, it's a big part of the conversation if we want to see some change. And what are some things or some places that are that are here in the U.S. that have have kind of raised an eyebrow for you or, or given you hope? So yeah, so I follow Vera's work pretty closely, and something um, you know that they focus a lot on is Connecticut, right? Connecticut is the Connecticut governor is one of the persons who went over to Germany a few years ago and and wanted to try something different here, bringing back some of Germany's principles. Um, So Connecticut is a place where we are starting to see some change, Pennsylvania. Um, Missouri, for many years, has been doing things a little bit differently with their youth population and how they treat people. So we're seeing small things happen across the country in certain places. What do you think are some of the biggest barriers that we have in terms of getting that kind of that, that steady momentum that we're all hoping for? Right. Well, I mean, the biggest barrier is we have different state systems, right? We're not one. We're not the federal system. Mm-hmm. You know, this this hasn't been happening in the federal at the federal level. Um, but the barrier is, right, you have to convince each state governor, perhaps, that this is how we should be approaching corrections. And I think that's the challenge. So we are seeing small changes in certain places uh, because the top leadership has seen that this is a this is a worthy investment. And when you think about your students who are going to be heading over there, they all come from a variety of different backgrounds, um, variety of different majors, uh, things that they have studied, different things that brought them to your course. Uh, What do you hope is going to be the unifying thread of such an interesting and eclectic and diverse group of students who are about to have now a, 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 a similar experience? What are you hoping is that thread that connects that experience for them. Yeah, a human dignity, you know, um, that the people that they're going to interact with when we go to visit some prisons uh, are just like them, mm. right? The the ability to see, I feel like the problem with a lot of things is that we don't get opportunities to go in and see, right? So we're going to go in and see what Germany does. And being able to talk to people who are impacted by the system is really powerful. Um, And as a group, the students will experience that. And we're going to reflect on that. We're going to be thinking about that, having discussions about that. And actually, most of our students who are enrolled in this course are criminal justice majors. And they're going to go on to be law enforcement officers, work in corrections here in the U.S., perhaps go on to get a law degree. So I feel like that experience will hopefully stay with them and impact the work that they do. We've been speaking with Andrea Cantor, who's the associate professor at the University of Baltimore and the director of the university's second chance college program offered at the Jessup Correctional Institution. Andrea, your work is remarkable. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we close out, I'd like to leave everyone with just a few thoughts. The title of this show, The Future of Incarceration, in some ways is a misnomer because there's not one singular way that we are going to approach that. Uh, You could do a whole series on the topic of the future of incarceration in many ways because you have to be able to address the poverty to prison pipeline. You have to be able to address 
prison reform. You have to be able to address criminal justice reform. You have to be able to address reentry reform. All of these things need to happen, and all of these things are completely intertwined. But for example, in 2014, there were 4 million people under state supervision. So basically, 4 million people who were either on parole or probation. So these are all people who had served time and were home, but were not treated as such. Because in many ways in this country, we treat every sentence like it's a life sentence. You can come home, but you can't live in public housing, even if your family happens to be there. And you can't get certain jobs to include federal and state jobs. And you have to check boxes when you apply for those jobs. Even if we know that 75% of people who have to check a box will not complete the application because psychologically they've been eliminated. You can apply to schools, but you have to check boxes on those too. And even if you get accepted to the schools, you can't apply for things like Pell Grants or other forms of aid. This is an asterisk that sits on your name and never goes away. Now, no one needs to tell me or prove to me why we need a criminal justice system. There are certain people in our society and certain people who, on repeated occasions, have shown and demonstrated that they cannot be with the rest of society. But it's important to remember a few things with that. One is we are talking about a small fraction of people in our society who actually are the violent offenders. The majority of people who are currently incarcerated or people who are sitting on parole and probation are there for nonviolent offenses. But also, that's not the way our criminal justice system is working. The environments that we create help to determine the results that we can expect. So that means we must be thoughtful about what it is that we are trying to reflect because what it is we are trying to reflect will directly impact what it is that we are hoping to produce. All of our future cities will include people who have made mistakes. And if our future city is going to be safe and thriving, we must make sure that we are destroying the systems that make it far too easy for certain groups of people to get caught up and also make sure that second chances can actually mean something. Future City is an original feature of WYPR. The show airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. It is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. To learn more about the guests and organizations we heard from today or listen to past shows, visit wypr.org slash podcast central. And to connect with me personally, you can reach me on all social media channels. And my handle is at I am Westmore. For 88.1, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. 